This week's guest is Level 3 Judge and Events Travel Coordinator for Star City Games, Ricky Ayash. How are you doing tonight? Hello. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's talk about the changes that happened today. Today was a oh yes, <laughs> a big day in magic. From SCG announcing the new, very ambitious uh, scheduling for next year, and along with the changes in points for ratings, uh, Planeswalkers points. Why don't we start with the fun one? Why don't we start with Planeswalker points? What do you think? Well, this came as a bit of a shock because people have been demanding this for quite some time now, you know, a change to the ratings. And really there haven't been any rumors or anything, so they kept this pretty quiet. And, I mean, overall it has to be a positive because it encourages people to play. Do you think that this will allow some of the professionals to actually come out and play instead of maybe sitting on their ratings points? Well, sure. I mean, that's what that's probably one of the primary reasons they made this change is because pros have sat on their ratings to qualify for a pro tour, you know, missing Grand Prix, a lot of people miss Providence, missing Star City Opens, and even FNM. I mean, that's ridiculous when pros are like, I can't play an FNM because of my rating. So, yeah, I think people are going to be playing Magic out in force at, at the, the professionals' will. Now let's talk about the SCG changes. They said a new schedule, a very, very busy schedule, and they changed the structure from now 1 to 6. It affects you a lot. What do you think about their ambitious schedule coming up for 2012? Well, it's just kind of uh, bat-ass crazy. I mean, you look at the schedule, it's it's every weekend, right? Yes. <laughs> there's a whole four, uh, must be the pre-release, and no, no hole, no hole. Yeah, uh, just the pre-release. What does that mean for you in your job with these changes? Well, first off, I'll be at a lot of these events... We, we now have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six people in the events department, and we are currently looking for one more and possibly even more beyond that. But even with numbers like that, we have to send three people to each of these events from the events department alone. And so that probably means I'm going to be hitting two out of every three of these and then trying to go to Grand Prix as well. <laughs> What is the road schedule going to be like then for you as far as... What people don't understand is you have 12-plus hour days there every day. If you're a coordinator or a judge, and we're talking Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Well, we don't do Friday anymore. Oh. We, we, did for, we did Friday Night Magic for a while, but yeah, if you're there all day Saturday and Sunday, having to be in on Friday night as well was too much of a grind, so... Invitationals will still feature Friday because now the invitationals are three-day affairs. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of my schedule, looking at this off the top of my head, the first one, Atlanta, I'm probably going to be at Grand Prix Austin instead. Uh, then I will, I would very much like to be in Los Angeles. We, ha we haven't set our internal schedule yet, so this is just kind of where I think I'll be. Mm -hmm. Los Angeles, then Washington, D.C., uh, I think Richmond, and then I'll... I don't remember what the 
what the Grand Prix are across from these, but I I know I'm missing one of either Cincinnati or Charlotte. Now, the rest of the season this year, how is this going to affect how you do both the judging and the event stuff? I've, I've, I've had my schedule for this year set for quite some time. I mean, what I wanted to go to. Okay. And now, finally, in the last few weeks, we've gotten the announcements for uh, the staffs for GP San Diego and Worlds, which I'm on for both, which is fantastic. It's California, my old home. Now, you wrote an article about that, about the difficulty yeah. of getting into certain events as a judge, and it brought up some negative feedback. Why so? Well, I mean, a lot of people liked it. They were like, yeah, you just got to keep keep plugging at it, keep trying. Like, you can't give up just because you were denied uh, for an event, denied to work an event, because now we have more judges than ever. Uh, we crossed the 2,000 judge thres- threshold worldwide, and a great majority of that has been in the U.S., and there's a lot more interest in judging. There's a lot more interested interest in judging at the professional level, at Grand Prix and Pro Tours. So some of these events, the staffing coordinators have come out and said there were three judges who applied for each slot I have, so they had to cut two out of every three judges who applied. And that's that's frankly really hard to do, right? Yes. Um, so I, I wrote this article kind of saying, look, you can't give up. The, the numbers aren't favorable right now, but you got to keep trying. And some some people did not take to that take that message well because um, frankly I'm kind of insane when it comes to travel. <laughs> yeah, between your job now and your other job as a judge, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So these people are like, well, you know, I can't. I have family. I can't afford. You know, money wise, I can't afford to just try to go to all these events. Like I'm going to Grand Prix Brisbane this year, um, next month in October. Oof. And obviously that that's not something I would recommend to the average judge who wants to go to a Grand Prix but can't get on staff. Is there a better way of selecting judges for the major events, the Pro Tour stuff? Would there be an a easier selection process? Well, it's going to be a lot easier next year for the Pro Tours, I'm guessing. Yeah, they're only they're only going to need um, probably twenty to forty judges, and it. I don't think I don't even know if they'll open it up to applications, because once once you pare it down to that few judges, forty is probably too high. I mean, a two hundred person, I mean a four hundred person event, you probably want twenty to twenty five. And that'll strictly be the upper percentile of judges, correct? Yeah. I Like, I'm not involved in the selection process, but I would have to guess that it's going to be mostly level threes and higher. Maybe a couple of level twos who are testing for level three that weekend. Do you think that'll bring a better level of judging when it comes to a major event like that? For the Pro Tour, absolutely. I mean, just surely on numbers, you're going to have the elite of the elite, and the attention of the staff is not going to be divided 
between the pro tour, the main event, and the public events. And that, at some pro tours, that has been an issue uh, where the side events have been completely crazy. Um, Chiba, Worlds in Japan, Chiba Japan last year, side events went nuts on Saturday, and they had to keep taking judges from the main event because all of the events were much larger than anticipated. Mm. And there was one point where I think... Uh, one of my friends said he, they looked out on the Pro Tour floor and only saw two judges on the floor. I mean, some of them may have been in the back doing deck, deck checks and stuff, but that's very sparse floor coverage for a Pro Tour. Considering the quality of the event, you would want more attention to it and more attention yeah. to detail. Um, let's see. You know, you're very popular with the players on the tour. Could that interfere with your job as a judge? Um... That's an interesting question. Um, and maybe, can you elaborate? Like, what, what do you think, what, would, what do you mean by interfere? Okay, let's say there's a potential rules infraction. And we'll say you're friends with, well, no player X well. That mm-hmm. you may nod it off, kind of go, oh, okay, well... It wasn't implied and kind of pass by it instead of stopping them, verifying what it is, and explaining to them why they need a warning. Mm-hmm. Well, so I think there are two ways to look at that. One is for myself, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a problem because I take this job very seriously and push comes, you know, if my if a friend of mine commits an infraction, I'll just, I stick to the letter of the law and I say, this is your warning, this is your game loss, whatever. Um, but perception-wise, there can be problems. And this is, this is something that I have struggled with or, you know, had concerns about at various points because I, I do have, you know, Louis Scott Vargas has been one of my closest friends on the Pro Tour for many, many years. And through him, I've met a lot more pros and become friends with them. And so there could very easily be a a perception issue where I come to a table and it's Luis versus someone else. And if I make a ruling that seems to favor Luis, the opponent might be like, well, I know you guys are thick as thieves, you know, you guys were in Channel Fireball together. You know, you've written articles where you mention each other. So perception is a problem. And I I had this concern when I started to get big as a writer, and I talked to Sheldon Mennery about it. He's level five judge, and he was kind of in a similar place, right? He is a very well-known judge. Yes. Mostly through his writing and his work with EDH slash Commander. Um, and I said, how, how do I what do I do with this problem? And one of the things he said to me was just, you know, be friends with everyone, not necessarily actual friends, but, but be friendly with everyone, interact with them in the same way. And that's something that I have really tried to live by. I always try to be, you know, even if I don't know someone at a table, I try to interact with them as I would interact with a friend, even though I I may be giving them a warning or a game loss. Do you think it's ever happened where maybe someone in the past might have kind of nodded something off because of a relationship? 
It's certainly possible. Um, do you mean me personally or in general? Just, I'm saying in general. I mean, do you think someone may have, in the past, overlooked something because of a relationship with with another player? Of course. I mean, we're we're human beings. Yes. We make mistakes, and we often we often make mistakes because of our emotions. You know, emotional bias is a is a big part of that. So. It's very possible that a judge is judging in a tournament, and maybe they have a friend who unfortunately is a cheater, right? Mm -hmm. And they're cheating in the tournament, and a judge call is made on that match because they've cheated, or their opponent thinks they've cheated. And the judge comes over and says, okay, well, I know this guy, I trust him, you know, maybe they don't know that he's a cheater, and they don't investigate as thoroughly, and they just give him kind of the standard infraction and penalty for whatever they've done because cheating on some levels is indistinguishable from normal mistakes it's just a matter of did you intentionally do that or not why has the level of judging improved over time uh, we had the er era early on in magic whereas if you weren't cheating you couldn't win and now magic seems to be a very clean environment what has changed well the judges are better. Well, that's the question. Why are the judges better? I think we've had a lot of time to work out these techniques, work out the infractions and penalties, and also you know, figure out why players make the mistakes they do or how do they cheat and, and try to counteract that. Um, but a big part of it, too, is the players, there had there had to be a fundamental shift in the culture of the players from where it went to I have to cheat in order to succeed to if someone cheats against me, I'm going to call them out on it. And that's where it has to start because judges can't watch everything. The players themselves are watching every single match. So if someone cheats against you, if someone does something fishy, you have to get the judges involved. And I... I wasn't around for those days, but I'm guessing that didn't happen as much back in the day. Tell me a story of an incident that either caused you recommending suspension or removal from a tournament. I only... So, in my time as a judge, I think I've only disqualified five or six players. And that's me personally as a head judge of of an event. I've been involved in a couple of more DQs. Um, I mean, I, w- I was involved in a, in a DQ at the World Championship in Memphis where a player allegedly asked, asked for advice during the uh, deck construction portion of Limited. Ooh. Yeah, that was a big one. How does that work in that situation? Isn't that a your word against mine kind of thing? Or did he admit to it? It it took it took some investigation. Okay. Because there there was a witness and then obviously there's the two players, one who asked for the advice and the other who gave it. Oh. And so it took some investigation and you have to ask the right questions get their stories independently, and then see where they differ. Isn't it investigating this almost like, like a police officer? You 
separate them, and then... And we shine the bright light in their eyes? Yeah, the bright light in their eyes and make them <laughs> no, sit. They can't eat that. for a week. No, I'm kidding. But, no, seriously, isn't it treated kind of like that, where you pull them aside and talk to them independently? And Sure. I mean, part of it is like a police in- in- interrogation. But I think the best investigation techniques are, where, you, where at least in the beginning, you make them a little comfortable so that they will open up and, and talk to you a little more. Um, one, of, one of the best investigating judges I've ever seen just goes up to a player or, you know, the player's pulled over to him and he'll shake his hand and he'll say, hey, my name's this, like, what's your I'm not going to say his name so that people don't catch on. But this is his technique. He'll, you know, How's it going? Where'd you come from? What are you playing today? He'll ask these very innocent questions that the player will answer truthfully because he has no reason to hide his name, where he's from, what he's playing, right? So he'll get into this groove of answering questions truthfully, and then he'll kind of start to slip in the, so what happened in the game where you did this and this? Ah, and then they slip up because they're used yeah, to Yeah, because they're just talking to a friend. Yeah, uh, okay. All right. And then if he has some, and one of the things is you... You want to ask leading questions. You don't want to just say, did you lie when you did this, yes or no? That, you want to try to get them to tell their own story and then find the inconsistencies. Speaking of cheating that we talked about earlier, what is the responsibility of judges and Wizards of the Coast at an event if someone's been accused of cheating? Been accused of? Yeah. Yeah. Let's say it's during a match, and the player I'm playing against, I see him do, uh, I guess it would be like the two-card technique where you can look at the one below it while pulling up your card. Mm. I, I'm seeing that he's pulling, he's looking at two cards so he knows what's next. In any situation, we want to get things right. You know, if someone is cheating, we want to DQ them from the tournament. But as I said earlier, how do we distinguish this guy intentionally picked up two cards and looked at the second one from it was an accident because his sleeves were stuck? The, you know, picking at the intent of a person, we can't read minds, so it's very difficult, which is why we ask players to call judges when something like this happens. And we issue a warning, and that warning is recorded in the computer. And if someone is maliciously doing this kind of stuff, the hope is that it'll catch up with them because we'll begin to see a pattern in all of the events that they play. Well, why are they always getting a warning for this? Your job as travel coordinator isn't easy. What are some of the positives for for getting people to where they need to get to and also running an event? Uh, well, in terms of... The event travel, it, um, it's been very satisfying to learn the industries, both of airlines and hotels, which is kind of the two cruxes that I deal with as an event travel coordinator. You know, I have to, I have to book flights for Star City Games staff which means uh, the events team 
the sales and acquisitions team, and the coverage team, which means Glenn Jones, you know, the the content, yep. the coverage content manager, and two SCG Live commentators. Now we drive to a lot of events uh, based out of Roanoke, Virginia. We we get to the farthest north we drove is Boston. To the south is Orlando. And to the west, farthest we drove is, I want to say Memphis or St. Louis, somewhere around there. So then anything outside of that we fly to. And then most of the time, like the SCG live commentators, we fly them to. Because Gavin Verhey, our most popular guy, I, I, I believe, is from Seattle. So he was he drove to the Seattle Open, but every every other time you see him on camera, I'm I'm behind the scenes getting in there on time. And through through all that, I've I've learned a lot about the uh, kind of the angle shoots you can do in the airline industry and all the free stuff you can get, etc. What about being an event coordinator on site, where you're running the event and you have to manage the judges and make sure the events go off on time and all those things? Explain the positives of doing that. On-site is a blast because there you are with, I don't know, four to 600 friends. I mean, there, there are a lot of friends that I've made through judging, through going to these events, through running these events. And I really hope that there are even more friends on the horizon. Like, I, I always love meeting people talking to them, becoming Facebook friends. And, and then, you know, the next time I see them at an event, I can be like, oh, hey, we haven't seen each other since such and such. I mean, from everyone from, you know, Jerry Thompson, the king of the Star City Open Circuit, to little A.J. Kerrigan, the, the 12-year-old assassin, I think they called him on camera. The tiny assassin, I think, maybe? Yes, the tiny assassin, I believe. Yeah to other judges, commentators, people in the media, you know, like yourself. We we met at an event, you're like you introduced yourself and now here we are. Yeah. And if we see each other in an event, handshakes and maybe if, if there's time we can catch a meal or whatever. It's a it's a lot of fun. Like I, I just got back from Pro Tour Philadelphia where I was not judging. I went up just for the social aspect. Went out to dinner with some judges. Went out to lunch the next day with uh, Zane Begg and Tristan Sean Gregson from Channel Fireball. And it's a, you know, I, I really love meeting people, and catching up and all that stuff. Is it difficult to go to a pro tour event, and not want to put on the judge thing and start getting in there? Uh, I think. It, my answer used to be yes, <laughs> but I I don't know. This this event was a lot of fun because there was no pressure. I didn't have to be anywhere at a certain time. Sunday morning, I got up like at 9, 9.30, whereas if I were judging, I would probably be up at 7. And so I got to sleep in, enjoyed a leisurely breakfast, wandered around, had lunch, went shopping. It was, uh, you know, it's it's as if I scrubbed out of the Pro Tour and had nothing to do on Sunday. And it was a lot of fun. When you're judging a Pro Tour event, or any event, 
and you're walking around making sure that the tables you're working are okay. Are you able to, like, keep track of what's happening as far as when it gets to top eight time, like, you know who's where or who could be where, or is that just something that happens and you guys are there and it doesn't matter? You mean the players? Like, yeah. Do I keep track of who's doing well? Like, you know who's at the top tables based on where they're at, but, like, when it's the last round before a top eight, are even judges kind of peeking at the list to see who might make it? I do. I do peek. I like to peek, but honestly, Robert, yeah. most of the time I have no idea what's going on. Ah. Uh, Pro Tour San Diego, I, I judged that event, and I... Believe on day two, I'm, I must have been on the feature match area coverage, and I think it was round sixteen. Luis gets called for a feature match and goes over and comes over to the area where I was waiting with the slips and everything. And I say, "Oh, hey, Luis, th- this must be good news. You know, you're in the feature match area in round sixteen. Must mean you're in contention for top eight. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, actually, I'm 15-0, and 0, and I'm just going to try to dream crush this guy to get the perfect 16-0. and 0. So I had no idea, you know, the first time the first time I knew he was in top eight contention was when he came over. I had no idea that this historic, you know, 15-0, and 16-0 run was going on. It's, uh, I'd like to know, but it's very hard because we have to do all these other things. You talked a little earlier about your road trips when you drive in the car. You talked about an incident where you guys slid off the road in a ditch in Nebraska. Yeah, that, that was on Facebook. Yes. A lovely picture of it. Sure. I mean, I can tell you all about that one. This was January of this year, 2011. We had the Star City Games open in Kansas City. That was our first event of the year. And... We packed everything up into the van, and for this trip, it was going to go Kansas City to San Jose. And myself and Tasha Jameson, who is my girlfriend and was working for Star City Games at the time, were supposed to drive all the way to California, presumably because I'm from California and that would give give us a little extra time to see some family, some of my family and stuff. So we packed the van up Sunday night in Kansas City, go to bed, wake up at some insane hour, I think 6 o'clock. And uh, what did we do? Did we, we probably drove some of the guys to the airport, dropped them off, and then hit the road. And I think it started snowing the night before, but it was coming down pretty thick at that point, 6 a.m., and they were saying that there was a major storm in the Midwest. So we're going through Nebraska, which is, I think, next to Missouri. Yes, it is. <laughs> and Tasha was driving because she's from Minnesota. She has a lot of experience with driving in the snow. I'm from California. I was like, why is the rain fluffy? <laughs> And we were on interstate, I think I think we were probably on I-80. And she was accelerating up a, a bit of an incline and hit a patch of ice. And I, at the time, I was actually on my computer 
and we have a mobile wireless connection. And I was uh, I was chatting with Jared Silva, the events manager, about something, you know, like what what we needed to do in San Jose, blah blah blah, something something. And then I hear I hear Tasha say like, "Oh, expletive," because she hit the patch of ice, and we started to spin. And I looked up, and I saw headlights, you know, in our lane. And I was like, "That's not right." I shouldn't be seeing that. And we kept spinning around. And then we spun to where we were facing forward again. And she almost got control, but, but then couldn't maintain it. And we, we slid off the road. And so we ended up in this ditch. Everyone was okay. It was myself, Tasha, and Alexi Gusev, who's a level two judge from California. He had flown out to Kansas City to judge and then was hitching a ride back with us. Uh, all three of us were okay. The vehicle looked fine, but we were we were well good and stuck <laughs> on, the, on the side of the road. And because of the storm, there was actually a ban on towing that day, and tow trucks were not allowed to operate. So we had to get a ride from a state trooper to a hotel at the next exit, wait for the ban on towing to be lifted the next day, and then we were finally able to get a tow truck and get out of there. Van still ran fine after that, and we made it to California, albeit a day later. Were there any other unusual stories you've had since you, like you drove to Boston and things like that? Anything else uh, interesting? Nothing that exciting. I mean, we've had plenty of times where we've got lost. We were in Charlotte running regionals or, or national qualifier in Charlotte. And after the event was done, the judges were still there and were like, hey, let's go to dinner. And one of the judges looked it up on his phone and I can't remember what he found, like a Five Guys maybe or some kind of delicious burger joint. And he said, all right, follow me. So he gets in his car. We follow him. And we're driving through the middle of nowhere. This is like farmland. Like, there's no way. that where, where is he taking us? Finally, we see him stop in front of us in the middle of nowhere. It's not like he stopped at an intersection or anything. There are, there are no intersections. It's just like a country road with a bunch of driveways branching off from it. So he stops, and someone calls him on the phone, and he's like, Hey, what's going on? Why did you stop? Are we lost? And the the response was apparently, No, but this is where my... GPS says the burger place is. Oh. And it clearly wasn't. And that's happened with me too, you know, with the the iPhone GPS. It'll tell you, like, I was trying to find my mechanic or find a mechanic. And it took me to this place that just wasn't right. And I had to call and they're like, no, we're on this street. I don't know why I told you that. Is there more pressure for you being a judge at a Pro Tour event or a lead at a GP or SCG event? You mean which has more pressure? Yeah, which has more pressure? Oh, that's a good question. I would say, I would say that the Star City games have more pressure. Is it just because the complexity of the events and the amount of events you have to be in charge of at one time? Well, it's the fact that, like, I, like I said, we send three events people to each event. 
and we are essentially the TO. You know, in a, in a technical sense, I think Pete Hoefling, the president of Star City Games, is the the TO for all these events. But, but you know, he doesn't come to these events, so we are the on-site TOs, and we handle everything. When I'm at a pro tour, even if I am a team lead, or I think the most stressful thing I've done is public events manager, public events judge manager. Even then, there is an incredible support system. I mean, you've ha- you've got the head judge of the pro tour, who is a level five. There's almost assuredly another level five on staff, and, and this is for the current pro tour structure. I don't know what's going to happen next year. There are maybe four to eight level four judges. There are twice as many level three judges of you know varying experience. These are all people that can help you out if you're having trouble. You can consult with them if you have a mental breakdown and leave the floor. One of those people can fill in for you. At the Star City Opens, in terms of TOs, it's just the three of us. So there's very there's very little wiggle room to hide, I guess, from something. For example, at the Atlanta Open in, I want to say, April of this year, I was on stage uh, during the Legacy Open, and there was a bit of a ruckus, and it started to get closer. It was a man and a woman yelling at each other, and they were having some kind of relationship issue. In the in the judge circles, this has become known as the domestic dispute incident, and they were they were really yelling at each other. They were like, "I hate you! Like I can't believe this happened!" Blah blah blah. And all the players, you know, in the front rows just stopped playing and are looking like, "What the heck is going on?" All the judges were looking. All of us on stage were like wide-eyed. And I might have paused for maybe five seconds, taking it in, going, what the heck is going on here? But after that, I had to, I had to move. I had to do something because as the, as the on-site TO, you, you can't let this kind of thing happen in your event. I mean, first off, it's very disruptive. Everyone stopped playing. Second off, it's potentially dangerous when, when tempers escalate to that level. So, I've heard it talked about that uh, I jumped off of the stage, I jumped over the table and and horse collared this guy and dragged him out of the room. That's not exactly accurate. That's a that's a generous embellishment. I did quickly, you know, run around the stage, you know, the side the side stairs and run to the front, and so did Jared Silva, who was there as well. And we separated them. You know, there was no horse collaring, but we made sure to separate them so they weren't close enough to, you know, hit each other or anything like that. And we tried, we tried to calm them down and say, hey, let's, you know, let's take this outside. And we, we escorted them outside where they did continue to argue, but it was away from the tournament. The tournament kept going. And we tried to make, we tried to bring it to a peaceful resolution. Which I think we did. Now, does that literally stop the event when something people do something like that? 
Well, every everyone stopped yeah. and watched because they heard the they heard the yelling. But at most, you know, one to two minutes before we got them out of there, and then right back to the magic. The the things that have come close to stopping the event is unfortunately we've had two incidents now this year of uh, a player having a seizure during their match. And that certainly has stopped, you know, like a good row or two rows of players, both because of just the the surprise and that, you know, these players are very smart and very respectful. And as soon as they see something like that happening, they're like, forget about playing this game. You know, we need to help this guy, whether that means getting officials over or if they have any kind of training helping them out. Or just getting out of the way. Like, people have just dropped their matches, stood up, and, you know, backed away. Which is exactly what we need. You know, we need the space for this person person to have, you know, go through the seizure. And for any, med- you know, EMT personnel to help them out. Do you think that because of incidents like that, a lot of the issues people have with doing a GP is the fact that the rounds are round, round, round. They keep going and going and going. And there's no time to eat, or they're grabbing something and shoving it down their throat in between a round. When you see Pro Tour events, they have these extended breaks in between. Is that well, something that would help, or is it just would take too much time because they run late as they do? Pro Tours do not actually have any breaks. Well, the only break potentially is when they transition from the constructed to the draft portion. And if it's done correctly, actually, it doesn't take any time at all to change over the tables. Like, I, I did, I was the logistics lead in Pro Tour Nagoya, and we got it done real fast. Uh, the, the reason it might seem like there's a break is because Pro Tour rounds are 55 minutes instead of 50. You play Magic, obviously, because you were at Grand Prix Dallas, and you were throwing your hat in the ring there. <laughs> yeah, two and three. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. a lot better than a lot of people did, let me tell you that. Uh, that was an interesting tournament, to say the least. But if you could make a living at playing Magic, would you do it over judging? Oh, that... I, I don't know. <laughs> let me rephrase the question. If I could give you the skill set of Luis Scott Vargas and said, you'll play like Luis does and get the results that he does, would you want to stop judging and go towards playing? Well, that question is a lot easier. If if I'm as good as Luis, of course I have to play. <laughs> you, you can't be that good at something and not go after your dream. And, I mean, that's why I judge. Because I, I think I'm pretty good at this, and it's it's a dream, and I've pursued that, that dream with all of all of my energy and money and heart and everything. So it's it's much harder if you're talking about with my skill set at Magic. Would I try to pursue the dream? And actually, with the announcement today of the Planeswalker points, I. Um, I have to say that it's very tempting to 
try at some point, if I maybe accumulate enough vacation time, to take like a season off and just play and grind every tournament I can and see if I can qualify. Doesn't that seem a little more enticing now with the system? Yeah. Really rewards you for being a player. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons I gave up on trying to make it to the Pro Tour as a player was because it was so hard to win a PTQ or top 16 a Grand Prix. But with this system, I just have to show up and maybe put put up a couple of, you know, 10-win performances at a few GPs. I, I don't know. I guess I still have to make day two to do that, and I'm not sure how that works. But but even the Star Cities, like Star City Opens, nine or ten rounds of Standard, eight or nine rounds of Legacy, that's a lot of points. You know, win, lose, or be 500, like, I, I don't know. It would be interesting to see... I guess from my perspective, how bad of a player I can be and still come close or maybe qualify for the Pro Tour. Like, is it enough if I just go 500 at Infi, Star City Opens, and Grand Prix? Is there a possibility next year that you could suffer burnout because of the combination of judging and SCG Open? Me? No. Not a chance. Other people? Definitely. <laughs> people... Let's, let me put it this way. People have been warning me about judge burnout since 2007. And I've, I haven't stopped very often. Like, I took a break, like a one-month break in 2009 and another month in 2010 when I didn't have events. But... And even this year, it's been more events than ever for me, and I just, I love it. I keep going. You do a normal week job, and then on the weekends, it's like 24 hours of work plus, and yet Monday you got to come back and you're back to doing the scheduling for the next event. That doesn't seem like it's too much. Well, I mean, the day job is working at Star City Games. Yes. I'm, I'm sitting there booking flights and hotels and doing other judgely work for the Open Series. But it's working at Star City Games. I mean, it's insanely awesome. Like at, uh, like at a regular day job? Well, no, no. I'm yeah, but if it were a regular day job, it would be tough because I, don't get, I, don't, I wouldn't really get to talk about magic. It's a bunch of, you know, other people probably my age, older. We might not have common interests. But Star City Games is like a, you know, nerd outpost. I can I can go over and say, oh my God, Evan, what what the heck do you think about these Planeswalker points? And you know, I can have a ten minute chat with him on my break about that. I can sit at my desk and and talk to Jared and Nicholas Saban about judges. And it's it, it's legit work talk, right? Because we're like, all right, who who are these guys we want to staff for the Indianapolis Open in October? And then we're talking about judges and you know blah blah blah. So it's it kind of feels like cheating to call it a job. Is there a better job than that? Ooh, I mean, I guess there must be in Hollywood somewhere. 
because I would rather be sitting next to John Cusack than Jared Silva, but I don't know. It's a for me, I mean, as soon as I got this job, I said it was my dream job. This is what I wanted to be doing. And I, you know, I've often thought about, well, what about Wizards of the Coast? And it just everything I hear about their office dynamic and all of that does not seem as fun to me. It's much more political. It's much more corporate. I mean, yeah, it's. Uh, I used to want to work at Watsi, but these days I'm very happy where I am. Speaking of Wizards of the Coast, you are a level three judge. Mm-hmm. Do you want to be level four? Sure. Doesn't everyone? <laughs> what do you have to do to get the four? Because we just had a level four judge from last Ooh, weekend. Did I miss that one? I believe so. I know we had a couple of okay. three. I, I don't remember exactly the name. I thought it was a level four this last weekend. Like, Who did you have? You're asking me to remember that. <laughs> well, you interviewed him. No, no, I didn't interview him. No, no, no. I saw a Twitter post on it. Oh, we had an advance. Yeah, yeah. Chris Richter. Chris Richter um, was promoted to level four. He's from Madison, Wisconsin, which is now leading Roanoke in in judge in level fours. Well, they already were because they have Jason Lems, who's level four, but now they have two, and we, we still have zero. So I, I would like to be, and then we can get closer, but... Um, Sorry, what was your original question? What's the qualifications that you have to do to get to level four? Because I know the jump between the other ones are a little, I don't want to say easier, but anytime you get above three, it becomes this a difficult step to go to four, and obviously to five. Oh, yeah, it's the mystery level. Yeah. There is no... I mean, for level three, they've recently... They, we, whatever, put out the prerequisites to test for level three. And it's this list, list of things you have to have so many reviews, so many events had judged, recommendations from certain people. And that has really clarified what it takes to be level three, at least prerequisite wise. And then we also have a list of kind of attributes that we're looking for in a level three. And those things combined have clarified the process a lot. There's no sheets like that for level four. It's pretty much be a really, really, really good judge. And um, and in the past, you have had to have a specialty because the program, the judge program, was constructed with what they called pillars and spheres. And the pillars were responsibilities of level fives. And then within each of those, there were spheres that were level four responsibilities. So someone would be the level four judge in the, like, internal communication sphere, which is, you know, how the judges communicate information amongst themselves. And then... There might be the level four of the external communication sphere, which is how you know we communicate with the rest of the magic community, the players. 
um, they got rid of the pillars and spheres, so now it's back to being pretty nebulous what you need to do. I would like to be. I think I, in terms of, of my participation and my experience with events, I think is very high in the program. I, I have specialties. Like now I'm definitely a travel guru. If you want to find, if you, if you're a judge and you're like, what's the best way for me to get to this Grand Prix? Like, I can find you a flight. I can find you a bus ticket. I can get you hotels and all that. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I feel like I am an expert in the program is in, in terms of reviews, which is the process by which we get back to each other through the website, the Judge Center. They'll come to you and say, you're going to be a level four judge? Again... Nebulous. No, no one talks about it. But it, like, ninety percent of the time, it happens at pro tours, or it has up to now. And the belief is that they kind of prep you for it. Like, so you still do you still want to be level four? Oh, okay. Just wanted to know. Never mind, you know. And then at the judge dinner on Sunday night, which is kind of the big celebration of the event. They will announce it to the the organ the uh, the judges of the judge dinner. So it's in some ways it's a surprise because they don't just tell you you're going to be L four before the judge dinner. But I'm guessing that they have to kind of gauge your interest beforehand because so far at least there has never been a judge dinner where they've said so and so is level four and that person's been like but I don't want to be. Don't you think working for the Star Cities would assist you because you run additional events? Oh, yeah, and we have contact with many, many judges. Like, I I know judges across the country, and we've helped judges across the country in their development. I mean, we had uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. We had seven... In addition to Richter going to level four, we had seven judges promoted to level three at Philadelphia. And I, I, I feel like I had a very strong influence on the majority of those judges in terms of helping them, mentoring them, and giving them opportunities through the Open Series, you know, head judging, legacy opens and stuff. Doesn't that feel good as a judge? to know that your mentoring skills have made better judges to give them, like you said, the opportunity to perform at a higher level. Oh, it feels fantastic. One of those judges was Sean Catanese, my co-host on JudgeCast. Yes. And this, so it's been, I've known him for about three and a half years, and he's been a judge for three-ish of them. I mean, I think... I first knew him because he was interested in judging, and then he's been certified for about three years. But um, ever since the beginning, I knew he would be a level three. Like, even when he was just a a level zero helping out at a pre-release or whatever, I knew because he just had so many of the fundamental skill sets we would want, especially his diplomacy with players and his enthusiasm for helping players. 
And it was just a matter of, you know, three years of lots of events and, you know, cramming rules knowledge and just hanging out was a lot of it. I mean, he was one of my best friends back when I was in California. I mean, he still is, but we hung out a lot in addition to recording JudgeCast together, and we talked about judging a lot when we hung out, and that that has to be helpful to just talk with someone who has as much experience as I do about judging. You talked about mentoring people. Let's say I'm a level one judge and would like to get to two and possibly three to one day to run an event at a tournament. What is the best road to accomplish this? You gotta, well, you gotta do a bunch of events. Because there's nothing, there's really nothing like it. You can read as much as you want, and you can talk about it as much as you want, but you have to have those fundamental skills of being able to talk to the players. I, I see so many newer judges take a call, and even if they give the correct answer, they get appealed, you know, they get appealed to the head judge because they they didn't sell the call. They weren't confident. They, they just didn't have the right uh, body language. And the player is like, well, that sounds right, but you're, you don't seem sure, so I'm going to appeal to the head judge. And you, you can only really, sorry, you can only really conquer that by doing it again and again and getting more comfortable with it, just like a lot of things. I talked to Charlotte Sable about judging. She said you guys have a website that you guys can communicate with each other and work with each other as far as different things you need to know or learn or something like that, I believe. Yeah, dcifamily.org is our website. It's primarily used for applying to premier-level events. And some of the other functionality is not quite up there. But from there, it gives you it should give you links to many other places you can go. I mean, there's an Italian website. I think it's like italianmagicjudges.com. And a lot of judges are on uh, IRC in the Pound MTG Judge channel. And that's, that's kind of the part of it is you can do a bunch of events... But sometimes events are just events, and nothing much happens. So these other methods of contacting and communicating with judges, I think, are really important to developing or you know, possibly developing faster as a judge. And Facebook is another one. There are groups out there like uh, Magic Judges of the Midwest is a group, and I'm in there even though I'm on the East Coast. But I'm in there because it's a great way to communicate, exchange ideas, present uh, situations that happened in tournaments. Like, this happened to me in a tournament. Like, it was kind of crazy, and I didn't quite know what to do. And then other judges will offer their advice. And the less experienced judges can learn from that just by reading it. And that's a way to supplement actual event experience. And, And really, I think that's kind of the 21st century um, method of judging. I mean, there's nothing to replace the actual physical events and going to them. But you can get a lot of training and a lot of knowledge 
online these days. I have noticed from the times that I've been at events that over time, over the years, the judges now seem to have more personality to them. They, mm-hmm. But they take the time to talk to people, like to talk to them, to answer their questions or whatever. It almost seems like there's a, a reaching out from the judges to the public slash the players to say, hey, look, you can come to us and talk to us about stuff. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's something that personally I've encouraged in all the judges I talk to, and the players too. I'm always telling players, just you know, talk to the judges, get to know them. And I, I can't, you know, I can't take credit for all of that. I would love to be like, oh, it's all because of me. But it's it's a cultural thing. And I I hope that I have contributed to that culture, but ultimately, all of these individuals have to make these decisions, right, to talk to people. And I think it happens because once you do, it's a lot of fun. And you can learn a lot. Players can learn from judges. Judges can learn from players. It's one of my favorite things is uh, is talking to players because they they bring a different perspective on what we do as judges. What about the next season coming up and the fact that you're you're going to have to flip cards? How difficult is that going to make your job now? The transform mechanic? Yes. From Innistrad? Yes. Every time something like this happens, which is probably every set release, a certain segment of the population whether it's players or judges, kind of loses it. And then the people that have been around for a while, we shrug, we say, don't worry about it, everything will be okay. And there's actually, there are memes within judging circles about this kind of stuff. One of, one of them is that anything new will be the death of Magil. And we call it Magil because I think someone posted on a judge message board and just, like, typoed and said, it might have been, like, Priceless Treasure or something before that. Oh, no, I think it it was the M10 rules changes because that was a big one, right? That was a huge death of Magil. And he posted to the judge list and said, these rules changes are terrible. This is, I predict that Magil will, will die in six months. And that's that's become a meme now where we just say Death of Magil and Transform is another one. I mean there's smart there are really smart guys in R and D and at Wizards of the Coast in general. I mean the the rules manager Matt Tabak is a former level three judge. And it's only former due really to inactivity because he works in R and D as the rules manager. Obviously if he had the time he easily has the skills to continue to be a level 3 judge. Mark Rosewater, as much flack as he takes, his passion is immeasurable. He's not going to do something stupid that's going to bring about the, the end, right? They've brought in former Pro Tour players into R&D. Uh, Tom Lapilli, Zach Hill, obviously you know Aaron Forsyth, was on the Pro Tour. 
these guys all know how to play magic. And then they have the people in brand who are doing the research kind of more on the F&M level about how people have fun, you know, what they like, how they like to play magic, and they do the research. So so all of that combined, like, there's never going to be anything that fundamentally is terrible. There have been mistakes, you know, some cards like... Uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor and Stoneforge Mystic are arguably mistakes because they were too powerful. Um, Scar or Scars of Mirrodin maybe did not work out that great in terms of the flavor of the war. I think parts of it were really fun to follow, but ultimately it it might have not quite got there. The fact that a player's gonna have to take their card out of the sleeve and flip it over and put it back in the sleeve. How, lo- how long did it just take you to say that? A couple of seconds. Two seconds, three seconds, which is about how long it'll take to do it. Yeah, but don't you think people get kind of all crazy about that because they're flipping cards and a current mechanic that they'll be using, they'll just have to understand and deal with it. Well, they'll they'll complain about it. And then they'll attack with a 3-3 double-striking werewolf or whatever. And then it'll be the next turn. Okay. That's, that's My point is kind of that then it's over. They complain for a little bit, but then they're playing magic again. And then ultimately, I, I think the flavor of the werewolves is awesome. I think the gameplay... Uh, implications are really cool. I- I'm very excited to play with them. And if you if you don't want to flip them, then yeah. you can play with the checklist, right, in your sleeve. And you can, or you can play with. Uh, I guess if you if you don't want to flip them, you play with the checklist, and then you just swap them out when it's in play, and then you can flip it. And that takes even less time because they're putting one of these cards in every pack. That it should make drafting okay? Or will that be difficult because the card's actually both sides? Well, the first, if, if someone has not been paying attention to the internet and goes to an Innistrad pre-release and opens their six packs and sees one of these, they're probably going to freak out. And, and I really hope I'm at a pre-release where I see this. I mean, I remember when Lorwyn came out and people opened their first Planeswalker without foreknowledge. And they were just like, what is this? And then you get to play with it, and it's like, this is awesome. So I, there is going to be a little bit of culture shock. I mean, there, there already was on the Internet when it was previewed, but even when we first play with them, there's going to be a little bit of culture shock. There's going to be a little bit of, oh, I don't, I don't want to flip this in my sleeve. I don't want to use these ugly checklists. But ultimately, it's just playing magic. And I, I, I don't think there's going to be problems. In mm-hmm. terms of the draft that you mentioned, yeah, you can potentially know what card someone has taken. But as like some pros have pointed out, that it might be very good to strategically signal with a transformation card. And just like blatantly leave it on top of your pile and be like, I took the the blue transforming guy. 
you know, not say it, but show the table. And and maybe this will be something that through that teaches some of the the less experienced players how to signal. And then after they do that, they'll they'll learn how to more subtly signal via their picks, right? Once they start talking about this, and they talk to experienced players, and the experienced players are like, oh yeah, I knew to get out of white because you took that white transform card first pick. And then, you know, like the light bulb will go off like, oh. So, because you knew what I was drafting, you took different colors. And they'll, they'll try to incorporate, incorporate that into their own strategy. That's an interesting way to look at it. I never thought of it that way. I, I just instantly think of, what am I looking at when you when you watch over a draft to see the cards and stuff like that and uh, do that. But, I, yeah, I guess I can understand where that would be a very positive impact. There have, and there have been some questions asked about what if two players don't want to uh, pick their card because they're waiting for the other one to pick so that they can see the signal. And, I, you know, if that comes up and they're really pissy about it, then at that point, a judge can step in and make some kind of decision. Like, uh, take a card, turn turn away from each other, pick a card, and then put it on the table. Something like that, I don't know. It's it's all like, first off, call me over when something crazy happens. And then, if something crazy happens, just come up with a reasonable solution. It's not... I don't think... Judging is really rocket science. I don't think there's a need to get worked up about too much stuff. If there is anything you'd like to finish up on this with, as far as telling people any advice. Oh. Well, one thing I want to go back to is when you asked about level four and whether I thought I, I might be level four someday. And actually, like, my answer is actually probably not, because I like, I like to run my mouth off about, about things. I mean, I'm not exactly a death of Magil person, but Scott Larrabee, the, I, I can't, what is he, the organized, premier organized play manager, you know, he runs the Pro Tour, basically. When I saw him at Pro Tour Nagoya, he said, oh, look, it's my favorite anti-Watsi curmudgeon. Because, you know, I have said things at times that have been kind of like, rah, 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 rah. I'm, not, I'm not exactly the most enthusiastic yes-man in the world. <laughs> but it's because I'm very emotional about stuff. And if I feel like there's something that I don't like, then I might talk about it. Give the people that may talk to you or listen to your podcast, give them honest feelings, then sit there and go, wow, everything's great. This won't be a problem at all. Where's the reality of it? And, and if people can't handle criticism, what good does that do? Yeah, to a certain degree. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, like with the, with the Transform cards. I certainly understand all of the concerns, and I even have some concerns myself. Like, the, the first thing I thought of was, what does this mean for foils? 
And apparently, it means they're going to be double-sided foils, which is one of the most awesome things I've ever heard. But then, like, it started to sink in, and you already know how hard it is to keep a single-sided foil in pristine condition, right? You, you get that foil fog, as it were. So then I started thinking, well, double-sided foil fog? Like, it seems like it's going to be really hard to keep these in good condition. And furthermore, if I if I want to play with my pimp double-sided foil Garrick Relentless or whatever in my EDH deck, then I do have to flip it every time because I don't want to play with a checklist because the whole point is to be be pimp. So yeah, like it's it might get it might be a little annoying. So I'm not all about the rosy cheeks on transform cards. Rosy cheeks. That that was that was the wrong term. Isn't that a 70s reference? <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to know what it's, what it's referenced to. It's probably something sexual. I apologize. I ch- <laughs> <laughs> if this were Judge Cast, this is where I would say, all right, cut that part out. But you can leave it in. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Men of Magic. Let's hope tonight that you learned as much about uh, judging and a little insight on what I believe is the way people can look at things from magic from a judge's point of view and hopefully you've learned a little bit more about what's happening at Star City Games and for Robert Martin and Ricky thank you for listening and until next time good night <laughs>